the knock from heaven. Um, If you have your Bibles, please turn to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be reading from the second chapter. Follow along with me. Mark chapter 2. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they couldn't get into to him, Jesus couldn't get get him to Jesus because of the crowd. They made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, "Son, your sins are forgiven." Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, "Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone?" Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, Get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We've never seen anything like this. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. When Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with the tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not the man for Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Word of God. (laughs) 
Now you're getting kind of snapshots here. The whole gospel of Mark is like this. We talked last week about how the gospel of Mark is, is very action-oriented. You have a lot of just then, right then, immediately in the gospel of Mark. It's much shorter and to the point than most of the other gospels. I brought up the fact that halfway through the first chapter of Mark, he's already in his ministry and casting demons out of people. Halfway through the gospel of Matthew, you're still finding out who the family that Jesus is going to come from is. In Luke, his pregnant mom and his pregnant aunt are meeting and and, and talking, and, and John is beginning to talk about the coming of John the Baptist. Meanwhile, Mark has you already into Jesus' ministry. And this continues. This is a fast-paced, like I said, I called it the gospel of excitement last time, and it, it, it is this. And this is more of it. But in this time, we're going to see some pictures of Jesus as the Messiah. One of the, one of the things Mark was setting out to do was to present Jesus as the Messiah. John, Mark is the first gospel, we believe the first gospel written, and it was written in some ways kind of as an inside document from the church to itself, so it, it, it assumes a lot of knowledge. But one of the things it is trying to do is to really portray Jesus as the Messiah, because you have this problem that you know, the Jews had been looking for their Messiah for so long, and crucifixion was not in the model. The expected Jewish Messiah was not supposed to be killed by the occupiers. He was supposed to be the guy that booted them out and reestablished the kingdom, or so they thought. So it was, it was a very unexpected Messiah, but Mark is still laying out the things that say, no, this is the Messiah, this is the chosen one of God. It's, he's just an unexpected Messiah. And this chapter will really highlight in a number of ways how he's an unexpected Messiah, both to the church at the, both to the nation of Israel at the time, and in some ways still to us, uh, especially as 21st century Protestant evangelicals in America. Yeah, over, it's 2022, and I still have to stop myself from saying 20th century. <laughs> As 21st century American evangelicals, there are still some things that I, I think Jesus is an unexpected Messiah still for us. Even though we have these pictures of who the Messiah is and what he did, we have this tradition that we believe, sometimes there's, there's things in Scripture that are still unanticipated to us. Um, especially in this country, we, we have a tendency, we read a lot more of Paul than we do of the Gospels. And we read a lot more of Bible studies that have extractions from the Bible than we do actually books of the Bible. So when you actually get to the story, sometimes you see things that are, you're like, well, that's not quite what I anticipated. And, and some of that's here, and it would be very much that way for the first century Jews, not just the Jews who were looking for a Messiah as a conqueror, but even those that were looking for him as a teacher of righteousness, Jesus is going to look different than what they were expected. And here we're going to see you have to look past the form of what's going on and how it's not, oh my gosh, I didn't think Messiah would do that. But not just the form, but what's going on, because what's going on is still the heart of the gospel and the heart of what God promised he would do. 
So we start out, beginning at chapter 2, he's, he's going to Capernaum, and he's already, in, in chapter 2 of Mark's gospel, he's already attracting crowds that are so large people can't get to him. And we have this scene of him going and preaching in a house. And we have some men came to him bringing a paralyzed man carried by four of them, and they couldn't get into the house, so they, they dig through the roof and lower him down in the mat. How would you like to be the guy whose house this is? Jeez, I let, them, I let this guy come and teach, and now i got to get a new roof. But Jesus sees them lowering the man down, and he sees their faith. And he says to the man, son, your sins are forgiven. As a good 21st century Protestant, that seems weird. Because we, we have this idea, you know, it's, you know, without one plea, I come to you, you know, except your blood was shed for me. We think of it as this individual thing, us and God. And here, it's his friends bringing him. It's their faith, Jesus says, sees, and he says to the man, hey, your sins are forgiven. This is letting us know that the gospel is not an individual project. Project. You can't reduce the gospel to God saving souls. God is saving souls. God is saving all of us. But, you know, Paul makes it clear God was in Christ reconciling all things to himself. God is redeeming all of creation, and it's a communal project. We don't stand or fall alone. It's like the Philippian jailer, you know, when he says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul talks to me, he goes, do this, and you'll be saved and your whole household. So there's this scope that's maybe bigger than we think. When we think of the Messiah, we think of the Messiah, you know, Jesus, you, you made me right with God, but he is restoring all things and he is working through relationships and, and community. We never stand alone in the kingdom of God. We're always bound in the life and the love and the faith of our friends. One difference, you know, coming up, like getting saved in a very evangelical tradition in Texas, you know, a lot of your walk kind of is is dependent on how you feel about God at any given moment. And one real benefit of discovering the history of the church is there's times you can come to times when personally your faith feels weak and you doubt and you can go, you know what, right now, I'm just going to rest on this 2,000-year history of faith, and I'm going to read what the church has always said in times like these, and I am going to let, literally, I'm going to let the faith of the church carry me for a while. It's not all dependent on how I feel at this moment. I have this family that God has placed me in, that God called me through. I didn't come to God an individual decision. I came to God because I had a very godly friend and his godly friends who were my friends, and their faith brought me to God. So that is a little unexpected. That looks different, and it certainly looks different to the people sitting around them. They're thinking in their hearts, who does this guy think he is? Only God can forgive sins. Why is he saying forgive sins? And Jesus knew in his spirit what they were thinking in their hearts. They weren't talking. They were just thinking it. But Jesus knew, and he answered them directly. And he said, why are you saying these things? Which is easier to to say to this paralyzed man, 
your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. Some people can read into this and you can come to the same conclusion that Jews at the time did. If you're sick, if you're paralyzed, you did something wrong. You know, if you're, you know, he's sick, he wouldn't be sick unless he was really a sinner or his parents were sinners. And, and in certain segments of the, uh, of the church, you'll actually find this. Well, you know, if you really had faith, if you didn't have some secret sin, you'd be healed. That's not always the way it works. And that's not what Jesus is saying here. But he is presenting a picture of salvation that it's whole, it's holistic, it addresses the whole person. Yes, you're here and you're paralyzed, but that's not your only problem. That's not your biggest problem. But you know what? Your biggest problem is taken care of. Your sins are forgiven. Go. And oh, by the way, yeah, get up, take your mat and walk. And that's as much a sign for him as for everybody else. They're like, wow, we, we have not seen this before. But are they really going to understand it? Or are they just going to go, wow, that was weird? You know, as if, you know, you're driving through downtown Concord and a blue kangaroo ran across the street. Wouldn't change your worldview, but you just go, oh, that's weird. And I think... At that point, a lot of people were just going, wow, that's weird. And they're not, not understanding what's going on. Once again, and again, it's that punchy language in Mark. Right after that, a large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. So we start this, this little section here with the picture of Jesus and by the lake, big crowd. All the other gospels, what's going to happen? We're going to get to what Jesus was teaching the crowd. Not Mark. Mark's going to go, yeah, there's a big crowd. Jesus was teaching. Oh, by the way. And anyway, he's walking by the lake, and he sees Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth, and he says, follow me. So there's this large crowd pressing in to see him, to hear him, to hear what he has to say. What does this great teacher have to say? And according to Mark, the important thing is not all these people seeking Jesus, but Jesus going, you, there, come here, follow me. So again, this isn't, you know, this isn't a great teacher acknowledging his students like you'd expect. This is big crowd of students and him going, oh, you, come here, follow me. And Levi got up and followed him. They went and had dinner at his house. And everybody's really upset by this because fellowship implies acceptance in this time. That's, fellowship is, hospitality is, is a, a deep tradition in the ancient world, and, and it does apply, imply acceptance. And people are wondering, you know, he's, he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. And it's interesting because this time Jesus says, on hearing this, he says to them, rather than just knowing in his heart, but he hears, and they're talking to his disciples, you know, they're like, hey, you know, this guy that you're following, this Messiah, look who he's hanging out with. Those are the wrong people. And Jesus says, it's not the healthy that need the doctor, but the sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Like most things Jesus says, there's a lot of wisdom in this reply. If you were a Pharisee and you heard this, you might hear, oh, okay, he's come to, to save the bad people, not the righteous people. And you know, so I understand it now. Those are the bad people. 
and, and we're the good people, and the, he, you know, a doctor comes to save the bad people. Yeah, well, he's preaching to you too. The whole point is here that God came to redeem his whole creation. Oh, by the way, you all need this because you're all this kind of people, whether you realize it or not. But it's like I say, it's an, an interesting statement where you could, if you weren't self-reflective, if you were just sitting on your position, you could hear that and go, oh yeah, okay, those are the bad guys, they need him, I don't. But if you are reflective and you're thinking, okay, this is a guy that's preaching in the temple to us too, what does that say about us? And we do know that in the early church, there were a lot of Pharisees. People came from that Pharisaical tradition into the early church, so at least some of them heard this and thought, okay. But again, it's not, it starts out not with the people that are seeking him out and following him, but him calling somebody who's just sitting there, even though he has this big crowd. It's, it doesn't look like they would expect it to look. And then we get this. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. So, you know, that's what you do. That's good religious behavior. And uh, the people wanted to know, how come you're not fasting? Why are you why are your disciples not fasting? Well, for a long time, Israel had been in mourning. They've never really come back from exile. Once Babylon destroys Jerusalem and the temple, sure, Jews came back and they rebuilt the temple, but they've never been a nation stably since then. They do have a brief period, but there's never a sense that the Messianic kingdom, the line of David, is restored. So they're always, in a sense, in mourning. And a lot of the traditions that grew up during the time of the exile around fasting, that's mourning because God has not restored the kingdom and they're very sad. And what Jesus is saying, this isn't the time for mourning anymore. He says, this is a time of celebration. He said, this isn't the final time of celebration. There'll, be, there'll come a time when I'm taken away. And then my disciples will be like you and they will fast like this. But right now, this is this. So even though it looks different from the way you've always done church, it's, it's acknowledging the heart of the gospel. They're celebrating because Messiah is here. It says it wouldn't be appropriate for them to be mourning. It would tear the whole thing up. If I tried to treat them like this was still the exile, it would, it would tear everything up. It would ruin everything. This is a different time, so we're going to do things differently. And then the final story, we get one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples were walking along. They began to pick some heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, hey, why are your disciples breaking the law? They're, they're picking grain and eating. And Jesus is like, don't you know the scriptures? Didn't you ever read what David did? David went and took the bread from the temple, you know, that's only lawful for the priests to eat. And he gave it to his his followers, and they ate it. Said the, the, the law of the Sabbath was set up for you, was set up to be a blessing to you. You weren't made for it. It was made for you. Now, he's not saying the law of the Sabbath in all these things. He's not saying that what came before is bad. He's just saying this is a different time. Things are different. He's not being an iconoclast like, there is a, always in culture, there's a, a tendency for new generations to want to just trash everything that came before. 
and say, you know, you got it all wrong. We're going we're gonna to start again. That's not what's going on. It's saying he's honoring what came before, but he's saying that's not the time you're in now. This is not the way that works. But he is always faithful to the original call of Israel. That original notion that God created a good creation that we, through our own bad choices, damaged, and God is working to restore that. Everything he does is in line with that story. It just looks different than people expected it. But it's not just rebellion. It is a different time, and but filling the same heart call. One of the biggest traditions in the history of the church, if you look at the history of the church over the last 2,000 years, you find revival and then kind of falling off, much like the history of the nation of Israel. It's kind of the same thing. You find time of revival and then it falls off and then new revival and it kind of does. And usually when revival comes, the people that are most upset about it are like the people that were part of the last wave of revival because they're like, well, that's not the way we did it. But they, they're focusing on the form and not what's happening. They're not Focusing on the fact, are people being drawn to God? Are we seeing the character of Christ formed in people? Are we seeing people become more loving? They're just like, oh my gosh, that's wrong. Um, in the particular time in which I became a Christian, um, there was a lot of popular Christian music coming out. Rock music. And that royally upset a lot of segments of the church people were like you you know you would there were whole books published on how they were you know the devil's shepherds leading the flock astray you know that the you know if you have four four time and a drum beat that works like this there's some way satan works through that that he doesn't work through what was really 19th century barroom music that we have now <laughs> made popular, you know, there was this notion that somehow that form was bringing, and people would get really, really upset about it. But it was silly, because you're not watching, you're not watching what's going on, or is this part of something that's bringing people deeper into Christ? And, you know, there's always, in any movement, you will always have, you can always find somebody that's tripping up and falling down. But what is the main, what is the main impetus of this? Is this furthering? Is this bringing in people? Is this helping people become more deeply rooted? And at the time, that really was helping a lot of, a lot of people accept, including me, uh, a lot of people kind of get deeper into the church because you would, you would hear just some great theology. You'd hear some bad theology in some of those songs too. But sometimes you'd hear really good theology and you'd go, oh wait, I, I got to go read about this. Um, you know, is this really what it was like when, when Christ was on the cross? Was, you know, that, that's very God on the cross? And you're hearing that, and you're hearing it through a, a cultural medium that the generation immediately before you is scared stiff of. Some of that is what's going on here. They're going, this isn't the way we've done church. This isn't the way it looks. But you've got guys that are paralyzed that are getting up and walking. You have tax collectors and sinners changing their way of life, amending their ways. Yeah, the, the, the outside trappings look different. This isn't what we were expecting. This isn't the Messiah we were expecting. You know, um, uh, 
These aren't the droids you're looking for. Okay, that's a bad cultural reference. Huh? <laughs> um, yes, I know you're too young to remember Star Wars. Thank you. <laughs> and some of you were, Star Wars was after you, but hopefully one or two people got that reference. But yeah, this is not the Messiah you were expecting. It wasn't what you were looking for, but it is the Messiah. And if you're looking past the forms, if you're looking past the way it doesn't fit, everything that's happening is what God's prophets had said would happen with the new Messiah. So in that day and in this day, still, God often works in ways we don't expect. But if you look past the trappings, you will always see the things that the prophets and the apostles promised. You will see people experiencing deep peace. You will see people experiencing reconciliation. You will see people whose lives are marked by love for each other. These are the things that we were promised were the signs of the gospel. We weren't promised that you would be able to tell the church, the true church in any given age, by its theological purity. Theological purity is great. But that's not, you don't find that as a, uh, you, you find, obviously, you find one uh, description of people that fall away is they don't put up with sound doctrine. Absolutely. But, but doctrine is never the hallmark of the church. It's its love and its character. Because you can agree to a faith statement and still be a jerk. But it's very hard to day in and day out live a life of sacrifice and love in accordance with what we're promised will be the hallmark of believers in the gospel unless you really are plugged into Jesus. Whether or not that Jesus looked like you expected him to look.